Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. So you're probably saying, I wish the rain would stop because I don't want to do anything else in the garden. I need to get some downtime. It's been a long season, but still a few things that you can be doing when it comes to planning. And because of the weather being not so bad and the rain continuing to fall and the climate just perfect, especially for fall planning, I'm sure that Jessica can give you a few suggestions or help you with some tips that maybe you need answered. If you pick up the phone and give us a call, 866-391-1020, Dollar Bank, Instant Access, kdkradio.com. Text us on the Red Automotive line, the best deal in town. Mr. Oster is off today, but Jessica Walliser is here. And before we say good morning to her, let's give you an opportunity to win a $25 gift certificate from Sorgles. If you're the 10th caller at 412-922-1020. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning. I'm horticulturist Jessica Walliser, and good morning, Pittsburgh, on a very... Tough morning to be a Pittsburgher who loves and adores her city. Uh, And I lived in Squirrel Hill for many years. And um, I know this show is about gardening. And it will never be about politics. And we will never allow that to come into this show. But um, as we know, gardens are a place of peace. And they're a place of nurturing for many people. And um, I know that's certainly the case for me. And so I will be spending some time in my garden today to recollect my thoughts and... um, and, and think about this city. And, you know, yesterday, as everything was unfolding, I could not help but think about Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. I grew up on Mr. Rogers. I watched him every day. And, uh, you know, Squirrel Hill was his neighborhood. And uh, it was where he lived for many years. And kept thinking, what would he think? You know, his big phrase was, find the helpers. And in a time like this, you find the helpers. But what I would like to implore to all of our listeners today is, Don't just find the helpers, but be a helper and reach out to somebody who is different than you, whether it's physically or spiritually or who they choose to love. Um, Reach out to them and be a friend to them and be a helper to them in in whatever way that you can. And so today to all of our callers, I would like to welcome you, as always, to call in with your garden questions because I'm here for you to answer anything about gardening as usual. But I also want to hear from you about a time when your garden or a garden helped you to heal from something, whether it was um, physically or mentally or you lost somebody you love and, and you turned to your garden as sort of a part of therapy for all of that. Because I think when you're a gardener, you really do look to your garden for peace and uh, as a place to nurture yourself and nurture other living things. And so I would love to hear from our listeners about a time when your garden really helped you to heal and helped you uh, to get over something because I think a a garden is a good place to be on a day like today. Uh, And so I would invite you to do that. And yes, Rob is right. There is lots to be done still in the garden despite all of this dreary weather that we've been having here in Pittsburgh. Um, But the good thing that all of this rain has done is, is it has made the soil nice and soft and very workable. And as Doug and I have told you for many years, fall is an excellent time for planting whether it's perennials or trees or shrubs and certainly spring blooming bulbs, this is a time to do it 
now this ground is nice and soft because of all this rain that we have had, and it is an ex- excellent time for planting. And in addition to all of that, obviously, a lot of our nurseries, local um, independent family-owned nurseries, you know, they don't have a place necessarily to overwinter a lot of nursery stock. And so they put their plants on sale this time of year. And so you can uh, get really great deals on plants. And, um, you know, I have some gardens that I used to take care of in the Squirrel Hill community for many years. I had a a garden maintenance company for 10 plus years. And I took care of gardens there on uh, Bennington Avenue and Wilkins and Northumberland and Shenley Drive and all of these places that were sort of, quote unquote, my gardens as much as they, you know, I, I felt like they were my gardens, even though I didn't own them. And I was trying to think of some of those gardens and some of the, the trees and shrubs that were growing in those gardens that I really loved and that I don't have in my own landscape. And so what I might do is head to my local nursery and try to find one of those plants that I have a memory from, from that community and plant it in my garden so that it becomes sort of a, of a memorial um, to those that were lost. And um, again, we're turning to the garden as a place of, of peace and memory, and um, I would encourage you to do the same All right, Paul, Paul from Cannonsburg, a winner of that gift certificate. We're going to get to a lot of your questions throughout the morning, and I highly urge you to get on the phone right now and give us a call so you can be first up. 866-391-1020, Dollar Bank, Instant Access, kdkradio.com, or you can text us on the right automotive line, the best deal in town. So in a perfect world, how much more time really would you say, or does it all depend on Mother Nature, that we have to be spending time outdoors it does depend on mother nature of course but um it also depends on the soil as much as anything else you know when the ground is this wet yes it's easy to work in but you also don't want to be traipsing around on it too much because you could risk a lot of soil compaction so it's about finding that balance Uh, we certainly don't want to be planting when the weather gets too cold and the ground begins to freeze because then uh, active root growth can't happen and when you plant a tree or shrub obviously the first thing you want to happen is for the roots to grow. So, um, I mean, I've planted shrubs as late as the end of November and, uh, you know, not had any problems with it. I've even put lawns in the week of Thanksgiving, you know, seeded lawns, and and they did just fine. But it does depend quite a bit on the weather. But at the, at the very least, we do have several more weeks where we can really be out in the garden and, and doing uh, planting and especially the spring blooming bulbs and garlic, of course. Time to plant that as well. So what's up in the trib and where are you going to be performing next? Oh my gosh, uh, Trib, I'm trying to think. I, <laughs> I work ahead so many weeks in the Trib. So yeah, I have a Friday co- column and a Sunday column. If you don't actually get the physical paper to read, you can still read all of my columns online at triblive.com slash Jessica Walliser, and that'll take you to uh, all of my most recent columns. You can see about all the types of things that, uh, that I'm writing about this time of year. And, um, you know, I don't have many local speaking engagements coming up uh, within the next few months. This is sort of a slow time, spring and then early Earlier in the fall is when I tend to do uh, a lot of the talk, you know, talks and lectures that I do. Now we're starting to get into the slow season uh, until February again when it starts to ramp up. But that's okay with me because I also could use a little bit of rest. Could uh, put a few tulips in the ground still if I want. Absolutely. Just be careful if you live where the deer are. A lot of deer are because tulips are deer's favorite bulb of all, and it's very heartbreaking to spend all that time on a fall day planting tulip bulbs, and then just when they're ready to bloom. Bambi comes by and eats all of their heads off. You mean off, their so. snout is that good they can smell those? Well, I don't know that they're, if they're smelling them or they just happen to come across them when they're browsing through your garden, but they do love tulips. And if you live where deer are, you're better off planting something like Spanish bluebells or uh, daffodils or snowflakes or snowdrops because they're a, a lot more deer resistant. All right. What do you say we talk to Paula in the uh, South Hills for Jessica Walliser on The Organic Gardeners? Paula, how are you? Welcome to KDK Radio. 
I, I'm just fine, um, uh, obviously moved by yesterday's events. Um, about the tulips and daffodils, um, what we did at my mom's garden, she allowed <laughs> uh, my son's privilege of kind of naturalizing a small hillside with daffodils. But <clears throat> I had been doing the um, um, lava or life boy soap scrapings into the tulips to keep the deer away, which works. Mm-hmm. But I ended up planting daffodils between the tulips. And as long as they were blooming at the same time, that kept the deer away from the tulips. Very clever trick. And we never had that issue. Um, My memorial uh, came about a little bit unexpectedly. Um, My husband and I went to almost adjacent churches, um, and uh, they're they're down by the the cane in South Hills. And now um, there's another care facility and a JCC there, so uh, it's a very busy... Uh, street, Bower Hill Road, with an intersection going to care facilities. And he thought the, the front of his church looked a little barren, and he really wanted to plant a garden there. Well, um, his heart disease was worsening. Um, I knew it. Most people didn't. And um, when he passed, uh, one of the businesses that he had traveled to, it wasn't even the company he worked for, sent a, a generous donation to his church. And Pastor said, that's going to be for Les's garden. Mm. And so um, some dear friends and I, uh, the men came in and tilled the soil, and uh, the ladies and I planted things. And it is now 25 years old. And we've had a few new helpers, but the ladies and I are also 25 years older. Um, so we voted a few months ago to um, put in perennials. Mm-hmm. And not so many annuals, but the first year, couple years, it was um, cutting flowers mm-hmm. so they could put them in the vases on the altars. And then uh, some other people had had different ideas, um, so it has evolved and evolved. And um, a labor of love, a labor of worship, and a sign for the community that, in good times and bad, you can give glory to God by admiring his beautiful, colorful handiwork. Paula, thank you so much for sharing your story this morning of gardens becoming a very healing place and uh, a place of peace. And thank you for all of your hard work on that garden and all of the other volunteers at your church who helped to build it. Thank you for sharing your story. Coming back with more of your phone calls on The Organic Gardeners on KDK Radio. So what is on the mind of Jessica Wallace? Oh, there's so much on the mind. Um, again, I invite you to call with your gardening questions, also with stories of how your garden has helped you heal um, and has really been a, uh, a place for you uh, to, to sort of let some things out, right? Physically, mentally, or, or whatever reason. But Here's the other thing, the other reason why I garden, and it's not just for me and, and the joy that I get out of it, but it's also for all the wild creatures that call my garden home. And years ago when I first started teaching about gardening, it at, uh, at the time it was at the Pittsburgh Civic Garden Center. It's now a part of Phipps Conservatory. Uh, but when I started teaching there, we, we would teach this class about putting the garden to bed for the winter, right? And I would teach that everything had to be cut down and all the leaves had to be raked out. And we had to p- pretty much treat our garden like it was our living room, right? We had to put it, make it all clean and pristine. And, and for years, that's how the fall garden cleanup was treated. But now we have all of this research and um, some of it is pretty jaw-dropping about how uh, connected our gardens are to nature overall. And 
with the loss of habitat that many insects like our butterflies and our native bees and uh, and fireflies with this habitat loss and pesticide exposure that they're suffering from, um, our gardens really become uh, that habitat that's been lost. So collectively, all of our gardens make a huge difference to these creatures. And so we now teach people to not do that type of fall cleanup because these creatures overwinter in the leaf litter. They overwinter in dead stems and in garden debris. So in your flower beds and your perennial gardens, instead of cutting it all down and ricking it all up and cleaning everything out, let leave it go. Let it go uh, all winter. Let it stand. And do your cleanup in the spring. And uh, the Xerces Society, which is a society for um, conservation of invertebrates, um, they recommend that you wait until the temperatures in the spring turn in, into the 50s, uh, 55, and then you do your spring garden cleanup. And that is what I have started doing in the past five, six, seven years. And it's made a huge difference because while people might not um, you know, think about these little creatures that are overwintering in our gardens, they are. And probably the one I think that gets people the most interested in not cleaning up their gardens in the fall is the butterfly because everybody loves butterflies. What's not to love about butterflies? But did you know that as we give so much attention to the monarchs and them migrating down to Mexico to overwinter? Well, we do that. There are the rest of the species, almost the rest of the species of butterflies here in Pennsylvania that actually spend the winters in our gardens. So butterflies like the morning cloak and the comma and Milbert's tortoise shell, they actually overwinter as adults. Um, they overwinter in leaf litter or in the fissures of uh, rocks or tree bark, um, and they need a place in our gardens. There's some that overwinter is a chrysalis, which would be like the swallowtail family. So those beautiful black swallowtails or tiger swallowtails that you see fluttering around your garden in the summertime, they overwinter as a chrysalis that's hanging from a dead plant stem. Uh and, and if you cut your garden down, you could very well be removing those chrysalids as well. So leave those stand. And then there's other butterflies like the red spotted purple and the fritillary that uh, actually are caterpillars through the winter. And they roll themselves into a fallen leaf or they uh, tuck themselves down into the seed pod of one of their host plants. And they spend the winter in our gardens as a caterpillar. And again, when you cut down all of your gardens and clean them up and make them clean and pristine, you're removing habitat um, for those butterflies. And so I sort of implore everybody to to stop doing a big fall cleanup in the garden and instead let nature be and let it have a place in the landscape. A lot of people are relieved to hear this because they think, um, you know, fall is such a busy time to begin with. And it's nice to not, you know, be, it's nice to be told that it is, you're doing a good thing by being quote unquote, a lazy gardener and letting your garden stand through the winter. Um, it's a really good practice. Other parts of the country, for just a moment, if we can, you know, the fall foliage thing usually starts New England up and works its way down. If you're in a place where the weather is harsher, you know, we've really been kind of spoiled here in my lifetime, especially the second half of my life, where the weather stays a whole lot warmer, and you can blame it on a number of things. But there's cold weather crops and things that you can do for landscaping and even things, you know, in your garden that will survive, say, a frost if you live somewhere in frosty New England. Can you actually target your gardening for the weather that you live with on a day-to-day basis? 100%. And that goes um, surprisingly true for winter as well. Um, my good friend and business partner, Nikki Jabor, lives in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Oh. Um, and uh, another business partner lives in Toronto, Ontario. And they're both year-round uh, vegetable gardens. In fact, Nikki wrote the book called The Year-Round Vegetable Gardener. And uh, she talks about ways that you can extend the season to uh, allow yourself to have fresh produce to, to harvest all winter long. 
And uh, she shares a lot with her neighbors and with her, her family members as well. And she grows in cold frames. And uh, they just put up a high tunnel, which is sort of like a, a, a half circle uh, greenhouse that's covered in plastic, but it's not heated. And so she grows a lot of cold tolerant crops. There's a lot of greens, especially that are extremely tolerant of frosts and of cold temperatures. And even here in Pittsburgh with a cold frame, you could be growing those cold tolerant greens pretty much all winter long. Uh, you'd have to clear the snow off of the top of the cold frames to make your harvest, but you certainly can do that. Um, you know, there's there's also a lot of root crops that can be stored in the ground through the winter. So if you grew carrots or beets in your garden, uh, you can harvest those all winter long. Turnips are a wonderful winter hardy root as well. And what I encourage people to do is if you haven't dug all your carrots up out of your vegetable garden, is put about five, six inches of straw or shredded leaves on top of that planting bed to, to insulate those roots and keep them from freezing solid. And then you can go out on your you know Christmas day, go out to the garden and clear that mulch aside and pull some carrots out for your Christmas dinner. So it's it's surprisingly easy to, um, you know, with just a little bit of effort to have a year-round harvest. Obviously, it's harder and almost impossible with t things like tomatoes and peppers and eggplants that are really warm season crops that are not frost tolerant at all. Uh, those you would have to have a, a heated greenhouse or, you know, be able to dig. You, and I know people that do this. They dig their pepper plants up and put them in a pot and grow them indoors. They have a little grow light set up for them. And they will, you know, produce peppers. And they're actually true perennials in climates that don't get frost. So you can sort of grow them as a houseplant as well. All right, what we're going to do, we're going to take a short break. Melinda Roder has the latest local news and more on that tragic story from yesterday from Squirrel Hill Tree Life Congregation Synagogue. Uh, we'll come back, and we've got that opportunity to win that gift certificate from Janoski's. Plus, we're going to take more of your phone calls and, you know, all sorts of things. And, you know, Jessica asking how your garden has helped you during that healing process. She'd love to hear from you as well on that. Marilyn in Franklin Park for Jessica Walliser. Marilyn, hello. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, Jessica, we have a small vegetable garden, about 300 square foot, and um, over the years, due to trees growing on adjacent properties, the area is getting a little more shaded, and with the wet conditions this season, the garden has been taken over by moss and what we think is liverwort. So we're thinking about moving the garden to a different area, but we also need to try to figure out how to get rid of the moss and, and if it is liverwort. Do you have any suggestions? Yeah, so uh, how much shade does that area get? Well, um, it's more than a lot more than we'd like. The sun is only there for about seven hours total now. Okay, okay so just enough to be able to grow vegetables. You said this is a vegetable garden? Right. Yeah. So really, most crops require at least six hours of sun per day. So you're sort of getting on the low end of that scale. So whether or not you choose to, you know, relocate the vegetable garden, you definitely will need to, to deal with that moss, whether you're going to plant lawn there or a flower bed or whatever. So um, moss is the presence of moss is often indicative of a soil issue. So uh, no matter what you're growing there, the very first thing that you need to do is get a soil test. And you can get okay. them from the Penn State Extension Service. Um, you're in Allegheny County. I can see you're Franklin Park. So uh, Allegheny County Extent Cooperative Extension Agency uh, will, I think they're $9 or something for you to get a soil test from them. Uh, and they will let you know. And probably uh, one critical number that you need to pay attention to more than anything else on that test would be the pH of that soil. Uh, and when you adjust that pH, that will often help 
get rid of that moss. It, it makes it a non-welcoming environment uh, when you have that pH adjusted for the vegetable garden, which is about 6.5 is ideal for vegetables. So that's number one for getting rid of that moss. Um, number two is also look at soil compaction. Now, compaction is typically not an issue in vegetable gardens, especially if you till your garden on a regular basis. But if it's in, like, say, the lawn where you're walking on it a lot and or driving your tractor or lawnmower over it, then you do have compaction issues. And moss can become problematic in shady areas, especially where you have uh, that compaction taking place. So that would be something that you might want to look at as well, whether or not the soil compaction could be playing a factor. Um, yeah, but moving the garden, whether or not you move it is, is up to you. But I would definitely look to how much sunlight that area receives. Right. Yeah, we, we've... Um... Yeah, we definitely are thinking about moving it to a much sunnier area, mm-hmm. get it away from those trees as they're growing up. We've suspected pH might be an issue, so the soil test is a great idea. Yeah, and usually, you know, here in Pittsburgh, we tend to be, because we do have clay-based soils here, and we tend to have, uh, our soils tend to be slightly acidic. And a lot of times they're very acidic, depending on how we've how we've treated them and what's been growing there and what kind of trees grow overhead and all that good stuff. So you could uh, be having a pH of something even as low as 5 or 5.2, which is really far from ideal for a vegetable garden. And it's not just probably affecting the moss growing there and all that, but it's also probably affecting uh, the production of the garden as well. So it is definitely a $9 well spent. Yeah, we've seen a decline in uh, in our yields. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, time to do some work. Yep, yep, have at it. Thank you, Marilyn, for your call this morning. All right, uh, we've got some uh, text messages. Why don't we take care of these right now for Jessica. says, is fall, Jessica, the time to put the additive into the soil to affect hydrandra bloom color? Uh, so uh, with our old-fashioned mop-headed hydrangea, yes, the color of the blooms can be influenced by soil pH. Um, and you can certainly do it in the falls. You could also do it in the spring. But my thing kind of with hydrangeas is why do it at all? Why not just uh, allow that hydrangea to be whatever color uh, it needs to be or wants to be? And there is even some debate as to whether or not how effective that pH changes at altering the color of that hydrangea. Um, now with the uh, macrophylla hydrangeas, the big leaf hydrangeas, you can buy varieties that will always be pink or will always be blue no matter what the pH of the soil is. So I think if you really want one or the other, you would be better off buying a variety that's always going to be that color, just genetically it's it's intended to be that color. But if you wanted to try it, now would be a time to do so. Good morning, Jessica. In light of your perennial garden recommendation, should my tall grasses and iris leaves be managed in the spring as well? Thank you. Very, very excellent question, and I'm so glad that you asked it. Uh, for those who are just joining the program before the news break, I was talking about how uh, our new recommendation in the past uh, five or six years has really been to leave your garden stand through the winter instead of cutting and cleaning everything out, um, especially in perennial gardens. Uh, it's really important to do that for habitat, for wildlife. And so the question about the grasses is always leave grasses stand. If you have ornamental grasses, they always stand through the winter. Um, and I've always recommended that uh, from the very beginning of my career in horticulture. Uh, and, and they're excellent. They also add a lot of winter interest to the garden. Now, the iris foliage is a whole other can of worms. And here's why. Iris is one of the only plant perennials that I do recommend that you clean up in the fall. And this is because the iris borer, which is um, a moth that lays its egg on the iris foliage and then it turns into the scrub-like creature that tunnels out the roots and really can be quite destructive, that the eggs actually overwinter on that foliage. 
So what you want to do is do cut down and clean up and get rid of your German bearded iris foliage, and it will greatly reduce your um, you know, tendency to develop iris spores. So that is one plant that you do want to clean up in the fall. All right, number to dial to be on the program, 866-391-1020. Dollar Bank Instant Access, kittykradio.com. Texas on the right automotive line, the best deal in town. Eric from East Pittsburgh. So shutting it down before you start it up, what are some of the things that you need to be doing to shut that garden down properly so when you open up for business in the spring, you're ready to go? Yeah, so uh, just little tasks that um, you might not think of as important, but something as silly as, you know, turning off the outdoor faucets and collecting the hoses and letting them drain and putting them into storage and shutting off the water on the inside. You know, I have had a burst pipe because I didn't do that. I've ruined lots of hoses because I didn't do that. And it's just a small task, but it's one that's really important. Uh, If you have a backyard pond or water feature, uh, you definitely need to clean the leaves up out of there, especially if you have plants or fish or frogs living in that outdoor water feature because the decomposition of the leaves that collect in there can change the chemistry of the water and can affect your fish and and outright kill them. So you want to make sure that you keep leaves out of your backyard ponds or clean them out uh, at the end of the season as well. And let's see what else, you know, I, oh, and empty your pots. If you grew a lot of things in containers, as I do, you definitely want to to empty those containers at the end of the season. I always recommend refilling with fresh potting soil and compost blend in the spring. If they're really giant pots and you can't do that, that's okay. You can just replenish with some added compost each year. But uh, I always empty all of mine. I've got dozens and dozens of them, and I empty them all this time of year. And the glazed ceramic ones go into the shed or the garage for storage because they're expensive. And I don't want them to crack. A lot of times they're, um, you know, if you leave them out all winter, they're prone to cracking. And I don't like to do that. So actually I did that this week. I moved all of my uh, frost tender succulents. I grow a lot of cool um, agaves and uh, succulent plants, echeveras and things like that. And they're not tolerant to frost at all. So they all go down into the garage where they just sit there dormant along with my fig trees. And I've got some banana trees and pots. And they all just are lined up on the side of the garage for the winter. I stop watering them and and let them shift into dormancy. And then come March, I start taking them out on warm days and watering them and and letting them uh, get a grip on spring again. But it's actually surprisingly easy to overwinter a lot of plants just by putting them in the garage as long as there's a little window in there and just stop watering them. Let them go dormant, and they come back in the spring. You can call us now at 866-391-1020. Dollar Bank Instant Access, kdkradio.com. Text us on the Red Automotive line, the best deal in town. Right now, it's Marion in Slippery Rock for Jessica Walliser. Doug Oster off today on The Organic Gardeners. Hello, Marion. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. That's good. Um, Hi, Jessica. Um, I had a question about um, some container plants that are on my porch a couple years ago, I noticed in the spring after I had let the wa- uh, the dirt sit in there all winter that these little tiny native bees came out of it. Mm. And I called you folks about them, and you explained. They were so so cute, and they don't bite or anything. So I have just left the containers, you know, sit out in the winter, and the, the little bees seem to come back. So I was always, I don't know what their life cycle is, if they overwinter in there or if they just come back in the spring and put put their babies in there or how <laughs> that is wonderful that you're having that happen so this will be a case where you don't want to empty your containers for the winter okay. um, they must love the texture of the soil in that pot uh, they do require a really certain sun exposure to build those brood chambers 
Um, and these are, as you describe them, little tiny, super cute bees. We have 4,000 species of native bees here in North America. And there's a good percentage of them that nest uh, in ground, in the ground like that, in those little tiny tunnels. Others will nest in, uh, you know, dead twigs and things like that. But yeah, so um, it depends on the species of bee that you have going there. They could actually be overwintering as eggs. Uh, in that ground chamber, or they could be, uh, you know, hunkered down as adults as well. So it does depend on the species that you have there. But I would let them be. That's that's exciting. Thank you. And that reminded me when you said that one year, I have trouble. I live like in a lot of woods, and uh, different animals come and dig in the pots. I guess they're looking for worms or something, you know, like in the spring. Yeah. And some animal had dug in, but it was so interesting because down in the dirt, there was this clump of real hard soil and you could see the holes, you know, because you can see the little holes going mm-hmm. in. And I thought, wow, I wondered if that was like a chamber that they had made down there. Yep, and that's what they do. They build little brood chambers. The females, sometimes they do them out of mud. Sometimes, uh-huh. depending on the species, they might do them out of little pieces of leaf that they cut up and they form into these little cups that they stack on top of each other. And uh-huh. each one has a little egg and a little ball of pollen um, collected inside that the that the bee larva will f- eat eat the pollen until it's ready to pupate into an adult, and so they will do that inside of that little that little chamber that little tunnel in the ground, and that whatever was digging in there might have actually been g- digging up and lunching on the uh-huh. bee larva in there. That does happen yeah. sometimes. Um, it could also have been a squirrel kind of digging around in there to bury a sunflower seed or something, and this happened was a, to unearth. Big. It took out like half the dirt. And oh wow. Up. So I knew it was a big, maybe like I've had raccoons and stuff. Right, right. Awesome. It's always cool to come across something like that before in the garden that you've never seen before and you're you're curious about. Yeah, it was was maybe not quite the size of a golf ball or a walnut or something, this hard uh, clay. Yeah. Oh, that's a pretty big one then. That's pretty neat. Yeah, maybe it was a bigger one. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I'll just let them go then. Yeah, let them have their space. So thank you so much for your call this morning, Mary, and have a good day. Up next is Frank in Shaler for Jessica Walliser. Frank. Good morning. Good morning. I love your show. Thank you. I have two yew bushes on the side of my garage, which are approximately 12 foot tall. Last winter... The bottom third all turned brown. Then this spring, the green came back on that bottom third, and but it's not as full as the rest of the bush. Is there anything I can do to uh, correct the problem? Do you know what type of shrub it is? I thought they were golden yews. Okay, so they are uh, an evergreen, so they they hold on oh, to yes. their needles or something all winter long. Okay, and when you say that the um, the the bottom part is turning brown, is it mostly yes. towards the inside of the bush where it's turning brown? No, it was the whole, uh, all the branches more or less on the bottom third of it turned brown. The the leaves, I mean, the needles were falling off. Okay. Okay, so it's all the way to the outer tips of the branches. It's not like it's just yes. the inner part of the bush. No. Okay. So here's the thing. When we see when it's just the inner part of an evergreen like that, whether it's a white pine or an arborvitae, they actually, just like our deciduous trees, will turn uh, color and drop some of their foliage. So the evergreens, a lot of times you'll see it towards the center of the plant where they'll they'll be turning yellow and the, and the needles will drop off. But I don't think that's what's, and that's nothing to worry about, but I don't think that's what's going on with your shrub. Um, I, I wonder, is there a dog in the house that could be peeing on that bush? I do have a German Shepherd, but 
I know she don't pee over here. Okay, and she's not a leg lifter if she's a she. (laughs) So, uh, because a lot of times we'll see the bottom parts of evergreens die off because, you know, a male dog will lift their leg. And Right, so that's not the case on this either. Um, Yeah, so I actually would go ahead and recommend that you fertilize uh, that shrub in the spring first thing. And I would use an evergreen-specific fertilizer, a granular one, something like there's a brand called Hollytone that I really like, that's available at all the local garden centers. And I would wait okay. until the spring to do that. And that will help right. generate some new growth. I would also, okay. do you have deer where you live? Pardon me? Do you have deer where you live? Oh, we have tons of deer. Here. Yeah. So that's the other thing I suspect is that you have deer do like ewes, even though they're not supposed to. I've seen them eat ewes to the nub. Um, and so I do wonder if, since you're describing it as really being the bottom portion of the, the shrub, if uh-huh. some deer browse is also occurring. So I would put oh. some netting, or deer netting uh, or bird netting around that right. shrub for the winter, and that uh-huh. will help protect it from, from any deer damage. And I think that's going to make a difference as well. Okay. Okay. And I have, I have another question. Okay. Uh, I planted uh, asparagus from the seeds from the plants that I had last year. How long do I wait till I start picking the spears? Another year or two? Or? Uh, they were just grown last year from seed? Y- yes. Okay, so I would say from seed, you have to wait at least four years. Um, until four years. you. Yeah, you. it's going to be a long time until you get spears that are thicker than a pencil. When you get them thicker okay. than a pencil, then that's time that you can start to harvest just maybe a third of the spears that emerge and then let the rest go to fern because that helps feed those roots for the following year. Asparagus is an exercise in patience, especially when you're growing it from seed. But, you know, we both know that it's one that's worth the wait for sure. It sure is. Yeah. All All right. right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Have a good day. All right. Let's take another one real quick. Let's go to uh, Beverly. Beverly, you've got about a minute and a half. Go ahead. Welcome to KDK Radio. Yes. My girlfriend gave me a popcorn plant mm-hmm. she bought off the Amish. Is there any way to overwinter it? Did you send me an email about this? Yes. Yes, and you're. I'm going to answer that in the trip, but I'm also going to answer it here on the phone, phone for you while you're here today. Um, yeah, you can try to overwinter that actually as a houseplant. Uh, what I would recommend that you do is, uh, if the plant is not in a in a pot, dig it up out of the ground and put it in a pot. Uh, and then it's I would. In a pot now. Oh, good, good. Okay, I would recommend um, pruning it back really hard. So, uh, how tall is it right now? Uh, about three feet. Okay, so I would cut it back down to probably 12, 15 inches. Cut it back really severely, so there's just a few leaves left on the plant. Uh, and then you can either overwinter it as a house plant if you have a really nice, bright, sunny window and just, you know, don't overwater it. Keep it on the dry side and it will just sort of, it, you won't get a lot of active growth on it, but it will just sort of uh, be for the winter. Or you can actually stop watering it completely and um, try to overwinter it in a dormant state by putting it in a very cool room with minimal light, what, what, what I do in my garage with just one little light there, uh, and, and allow it to shift into dormancy, and then it will come back in the spring. It's one oh, of the plants okay. you can do that with. Yeah, I'll try that. It's yeah. really a neat plant. It is, isn't it? And it smells like buttered popcorn, doesn't it? Pretty cool. All right, listen, before we go, always a pleasure. Thank you so much, and uh, I hope you have a peaceful rest of your day. I know this is kind of 
been a tough one for you because of your connection to Squirrel Hill, and I appreciate you coming in here today. Well, thank you very much, Rob. I appreciate you and all, all these 13 years that we've been together on the radio. It's pretty crazy. And they said it would never last. And they said it would never last. Right, exactly. So remember, everyone, the organic gardeners always aim to teach you how to create a better place to garden and a safer place to live, and peace and love to Pittsburgh today. All right, couldn't say it better myself. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? You spend here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.